Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Today, uh, we're going to have a bit of a different format, and I'm actually very, very excited about this. We're fortunate to have Dr. Richard Barron with us as a guest uh, on this episode. Uh, Dr. Barron is uh, currently the President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation. He has practiced general internal medicine and geriatrics for almost 30 years at uh, Greenhouse Internus, located in Philadelphia. He served uh, at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services Innovation Center from uh, 2011 to 2013, where he was a group director of seamless care models and was focused on uh, care redesign. And he led efforts around accountable care as well, and particularly around primary care. Prior to that, uh, he served on the board of the National Quality Forum, as well as on the Standards Committee of the uh, National Committee on Quality Assurance. Uh, prior to that, he's served as chief medical officer at uh, Medicaid HMO located in Philadelphia. He's also been a member of the Commonwealth Fund Advisory Group on Healthcare Delivery System Reform, and he's co-chaired uh, a work group at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's a member of the Aspen Institute Health Strategy Group and a member of the Advisory Board for Healthcare, the Journal of Delivery Science and Innovation. Of note, uh, and this is going back a little bit, uh, he received his uh, degree at uh, Harvard College in English and his medical degree from Yale University. He trained at uh, NYU Bellevue, uh, NYU uh, Bellevue Medical Center in, uh, in New York City, and he actually served uh, in the National Health Service Corps in uh, rural Tennessee. Uh, so, Dr. Barron, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking, Zeb. So, uh, so let me just start by saying that most of the, and we, we've talked before, we've had a, a conversation, and um, I was uh, so um, intrigued by your perspective, uh, and and because this uh, this podcast series really is about fresh perspectives, I just thought it was a, a great fit. Um, most of the most of the guests on the show are are on the show because they've actually been creating something, a product or a service. But, um, but I'm, I'm really particularly interested in hearing more about your perspectives and especially given your uh, just uh, really just uh, amazing um, resume in terms of what you've been involved with in care design and, and uh, your, your, your voice and your participation at a, at a national level in so much of, of care delivery. So I'm really eager to, to, hear, uh, to hear from you today. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to give you some questions that will also uh, challenge you as well, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And Steve, I think I hope your listeners know about the diversity of your career as well, because that is also impressive. And the perspective you bring to these interviews uh, is is deep and thoughtful. So it's a pleasure and a privilege to do this podcast with you. Thanks. Thanks. And, and do you mind if I call you Richard or which do you prefer? No, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Well, Richard, Richard is fine. Well, Richard, so, so maybe maybe I'll have you come back and you can interview me next time. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. I'd love <laughs> to do that. <laughs> I'm a little worried about that, but maybe. So, so uh, you know, look, you, you, you're, you're, um, 
you you have a, a really interesting background. You you and I think part of it, um, and I'm just I'm just hypothesizing. I think part of it is is maybe your, your background in in English as in college, and maybe it's just the the, the way you were raised or, or the way your brain works. But I I'm just wondering, do you have a I mean, you're, when we, when we spoke, I was just so taken with, you're just, you, you don't fit into any category. You're really kind of an independent uh, thinker. And I, I'm just wondering, do you have a way of characterizing how you think about things or how you think about healthcare? Is there some way that you think about how you think? Uh, what a wonderful question. You know, I, I think that uh, one of the ways that we've become very influential and socially powerful in medicine is by hitching our wagon to a scientific paradigm. And all of us in medical school learn about the importance of science in medicine, and all of us learn about the dark ages of medicine and how it was before we really had science. And everybody who is a clinician is impressed every day by the way science and technology helps us take better care of our patients. And it clearly does. And yet, and yet, uh, there are a number of ways in which I think sometimes the science gets in our way. And I think for me, the organizing principle has really been, how much is what we do in medicine really a service, something that is a historical continuity in medicine going back to the time of Hippocrates. At the end of the day, what does anybody who's practicing today have in common with Hippocrates or an 11th century physician or even a 19th century physician? I think it's what we're trying to do, which is to relieve suffering with whatever tools we have. And that's fundamentally a human undertaking it's fundamentally a service enterprise. And I think science has made us enormously more successful and powerful in achieving those goals sometimes, but sometimes science has also gotten in our way by making us think that it's the science that's really the center of it. And sometimes I think we get lost uh, in the science and forget about the patients. You know, I have to say, it's so it's so fascinating that you're saying this. I was speaking to someone else this morning on a phone call, and this topic came up, and I I I didn't characterize it as being um, sort of a, a a battle or a balance with science, but it, it seemed that there 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 is this sort of humanism, if you will, for lack of a better word, and, and maybe you have a better way to describe it, uh, that is missing. And for me, it seems like so much of, of healthcare and so much of our system is decontextualized. So we break it up into pieces and we focus on those pieces. And even uh, we were talking this morning about um, uh, employee engagement in the hospital versus patient satisfaction and the fact that we've separated those things, the fact that employee engagement should be in patient experience, right? And, and patient experience. So the fact that you could focus on one and not the other. And so I wonder if it's, you know, around this, um, it's almost sort of this kind of, you know, Cartesian, the, the, the dissection and, and decontextualization, you break it down into pieces and you, and you work on the pieces as opposed to 
thinking about it more more holistically or more contextualized. So I'm just, what, what do you think about that? I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, it, it, there's a, I, I don't know who said it, but one of those uh, aphorisms out there is all models are wrong. Some models are helpful. And science becomes a model through which we can understand disease. And it, it is on the one hand, enormously helpful when it gives us ways to address predicaments that patients have. But we get focused a lot of times in healthcare on the model itself. So we will often regard uh, in a literature paper, for example, on the treatment of cancer, uh, if, a, if a tumor goes from six centimeters to three centimeters, we call that a response even if the result of the treatment doesn't lengthen patients' lives, and even if in the process of doing it, we may make people sicker than they were before they came to see us. And so we take the abstraction of the tumor, and whether it's bigger or smaller or here or there, and that becomes the thing we focus on rather than the way in which the tumor is interacting with somebody's life, uh, changing what they're able to do, changing their ability to achieve whatever purpose they might have. And we often get distracted and, as you say, focus on the pieces. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that it's the, the pieces are only tools for us to help the patients. Do you, do you think, and, and I know you're, 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 uh, positing science as as the issue and, the, and some of the challenges balance and the focus do you think the the payment environment plays a role in in this sort of decontextualization or this focusing on one thing versus another absolutely the payment environment does and and as you mentioned i have the privilege of working at the innovation center and thinking a fair amount about payment and a couple of comments i'd, I'd make uh, first of all Whatever we want to say about payment, um, there's a lot more of it in healthcare today than there was 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. If you read the correspondence, Charles Rosenberg has a wonderful essay on the practice of medicine in New York in the 1890s. And uh, I think Austin Flint's son of the Austin Flint murmur tried to set up his own practice in New York and Charles Rosenberg mind his correspondence. And his theme repeatedly in these letters is it's easy to get patients, but it's really hard to find patients who can pay. And that is not a problem most of our colleagues are dealing with today. And I, I don't mean to trivialize uh, the payment issue, but as Paul Starr points out uh, in The Social Transformation of American Medicine, we've come a long way in American medicine from the days when Benjamin Rush urged doctors in the 1780s and 90s to plant a garden so that they wouldn't be hungry and pray for a plague so that they'd get fees. We've come a long way from that. We have government investments in, in health insurance. We have uh, private investments in health insurance. And so the first thing to say about payment is to recognize that, uh, that it may not be as generous as we'd like it to be, but in historical context, uh, it, it's very generous. The second observation to make is that payment, as it's structured, winds up, I think, institutionalizing 
many of the values that the medical profession itself holds dear. So it's very common that procedures and uh, and treatments that involve lots of technology, especially new technology, wind up being paid much more generously than procedures that uh, don't involve technology. And though we split that up in our conversations about payment into cognitive payment and procedural payment, I think there's a deeper lesson in that, which is we all kind of believe in, worship the wonders of technology and the new machines and all the ways that that they help us take better care of patients. And the payment system reflects that. It embeds those values. It, it's not accidental that those kinds of things are reimbursed more. And I think they're reimbursed more because on some fundamental level, in our love affair with science, we we believe that the more technological, the more scientific it is, the better it must be. And of course, uh, patients today uh, often go through terrible journeys in search of miraculous cures. And some of them sometimes get those cures and some of them get an extraordinary amount of suffering along the way and don't wind up getting a successful outcome. And I think the payment system rewards that and is part of how we uh, how we continue our love affair with uh, science and technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, we have science and we have technology and we have uh, a payment system that many would argue um, uh, is somewhat perverse, or at least it's not supportive of, uh, of uh, clinical care in the way we might want it. In fact, uh, you know, I'll share with you, I was talking to some colleagues today, and we were talking about designing or developing a uh, wonderful approach to clinical care, uh, both in the hospital and then in the uh, after-hospital uh, time, what we call post-acute care uh, time. And, um, and the biggest challenge we were coming across is uh, you know, is the payment model, which, you know, isn't currently structured to really um, afford us the ability to do what we want to do in, in the way we want to do it. So we were spending quite a bit of time trying to be creative about getting this done, uh, given uh, just the, the, the way the payment system currently works. So, so we have all this. Um, what you know, you've, again, you spent uh, uh, you know many years in, in very very high level influential committees at the at the national level, focused on quality quality improvement, area design, um, and as you say, at the Center for Medicare Medicaid uh, Innovation Center, and and now you're at the American Board of Internal Medicine. What what do you think are our options for uh, for creating a healthcare, the type of healthcare that that you envision is the one we should be delivering? Well, of course, that's the $3.2 trillion question in front of our country. And I I think I'd make a few observations. I, I, I certainly don't know a single answer to that. But I think being more clear than we have been historically about what the goals of what we're trying to do in healthcare actually are. So part of what 
came out of the Affordable Care Act was uh, uh, an explicit statement of something called a national quality strategy. And the national quality strategy really enshrined what we all, what we now all know as the triple aim uh, into federal policy. And it said, what we're trying to do here uh, is improve quality of care, improve patient experience, and decrease total cost of care. And I think those three goals, and of course, a number of people have now made that quadruple aim care and including the well-being of those of us who provide care, that provides an organizing framework for what we should be trying to do in healthcare. And I think that large institutions, uh, when I first got when I first became a director at the American Board of Internal Medicine, um, I was a community practice primary care doctor, and there were other people on the board uh, who were chiefs of medicine. And I was involved in an early program that involved spending substantially more in primary care than is spent now. Um, and the basically, what was on the table was a group of insurers saying in Philadelphia, if we spend um, 30 or 40 percent more in primary care than we're spending now, can you decrease costs and increase quality? And I was on the board at that time and would speak to some colleagues uh, who were chiefs of medicine, and they would say, well, you know, first of all, what I'd use that money for is to erase the deficit that I have in general medicine. And the second thing they would say with respect to primary care and how primary care was resourced, they would say, well, it's not our fault that, that Blue Cross of whatever uh, doesn't pay very much for primary care. And I think, and this is getting back to answering your question, that people in leadership of healthcare systems today need to take responsibility for using the resources they have to improve the quality of care for the patients they serve and to increase the health of the community that they serve. And that's a perfectly legitimate conversation to be having. No one believes that the payment system as it currently exists is fair or is designed to assure that the resources go to the places where they can do the most good. So I think people in leadership and healthcare delivery systems have to have serious conversations about the way in which they allocate resources. So it is many doctors today are part of larger delivery systems. The people who are making budgetary decisions about the resources that they have access to it's not Blue Cross that's making those decisions. It's it's the management on the health services delivery side. And I think people on health services delivery side need to think deeply, not about how the reimbursement system makes money flow, that's the revenue side, but when they sit down to actually use the collective resources they bring in, they need to be focused on how do we improve the health of our community how do we improve the experience of our patients? And how do we do all this assuring that our clinicians are taken care of, engaged, satisfied, fulfilled? Now, you, you have a pretty broad purview, I, I would assume, in, in your current role. Have you, do you have examples, stories, do you have you know, observations of where you would say 
there is leadership or there is uh, an institution uh, organization doing this sort of thing or moving in this sort of direction? I think there are a lot of organizations that are trying to move in this direction. Um, at the Innovation Center, one of the things we were able to do uh, was the Healthcare Challenge Innovation Awards that happened on my watch and, and reviewing proposals from uh, people around the country who were working together in teams in health systems to achieve AAA care. And, and I think it, it demonstrated to me that there was a broad will in the country to do that work. Um, and I think there are lots of institutions, uh, Montefiore in the, in the Bronx, which uh, in New York was one of the pioneer ACOs. Uh, they were taking all kinds of steps to try to project um, healthcare into the community and provide care for a socially complex population. Uh, Denver Health is another example of a group uh, working on that in a, in a traditionally uh, economically disadvantaged population. So I think there are examples of large health systems focused on high need complex populations. Uh, Jeff Brenner in Camden thinking about how to uh, meet the full needs of the people who live in Camden and, in effect, redeploying resources. He, he created his model by identifying high-need, um, high-cost patients who were repeatedly going to the emergency room and being admitted to the hospital pretty much because they didn't have access to primary care and didn't have anywhere else to go. And the first argument he made to the hospitals was, if you would fund me to provide primary care in the places where these folks live, I could keep them from being repeated visitors to the emergency room and could likely prevent some hospitalizations. And these were people who at the time didn't have insurance. And so what he was saying was, you're providing very high cost care to these complex populations. You're not being paid at all. It would be cheaper for you to pay for primary care than to keep doing what you're doing. So I think there are a lot of people thinking creatively about this. Um, and uh, and I, I think I'm optimistic that we can figure this out. You know, it's interesting. You In those examples you cited, um, the two themes are, at least that I, you know, I'm distilling, uh, are a uh, focus on population health. So looking at populations and trying to figure out what the needs of the population are. Uh, so actually three themes. Uh, one is that the, the second theme is that this extends beyond what we would you know, consider uh, um, traditional clinical care, because now you're talking about uh, social determinants of, of health, um, whether it be around transportation or uh, safe homes, um, uh, having enough uh, employment, having enough money to pay for things, food, things like that. So, so that's observation number two or distillation number two from your comments. And number three, this idea that um, primary care uh, is uh, a, a key factor uh, in the solution uh, around improving health and outcomes and reducing unnecessary utilization and costs. So those were three things that popped out at me. Am, am I characterizing that correctly? And if not, what's your take on it? No, I, I, I think largely you are, but I'd, I'd make a couple of observations. The, the term population health uh, 
sometimes has a kind of black magic, black arts quality to it, and individual clinicians don't see themselves necessarily in that picture, um, and and often say, well, gee, you know, I I, I don't control housing, um, don't don't hold me responsible for that, and so I think the most important thing to say when we talk about population health is to say that what we're really talking about when we talk about population health is how successfully are we doing what it is we go to work to try to do. That if if we believe based on evidence that people with lower blood pressure are healthier than people with uncontrolled high blood pressure, and there's pretty good evidence for something like that, then it's fair for any health system, not only fair, but maybe necessary for any health system to ask itself the question, how successfully are we controlling blood pressure in the community in which we operate? And and I think that, that anybody in practice knows that there's the patients that you see and there's the patients that you don't see. And you don't see them either because they didn't call to make an appointment or because they don't, they lost insurance or because they, uh, any number of reasons that they might not be there. But if you are there to try to reduce suffering and you believe that controlling blood pressure is a way to reduce suffering, the most important thing to understand about population health is that at its best, it's numerator denominator data on how successfully you are achieving that goal. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that anybody going to work in, in medicine today, the same way that we read literature that tells us that the design in the literature is use this drug because we gave it to a group of people and they did better than a group of people to whom we didn't give it. We need to be asking ourselves the same question about the effectiveness of our own treatment. So I I think the term population health sometimes scares people. And I, I just want to anchor it in the same way of thinking that all of us are trained in as individual clinicians that it really is about how successfully are we achieving the goal that we're trying to achieve. Then the second comment you made related to social determinants of health, or was that the third? I, I want to be sure I... Um, I think it was, it was the second. You're right. You're right. Okay. The social determinants of health. And, and again, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I trained at Bellevue. Bellevue was founded in 1736. Pennsylvania Hospital, where I now precept, was founded in 1751. But Pennsylvania Hospital calls itself America's first hospital. Why was it America's first hospital in 1751? Because they, in 1751, excluded social determinants of health from their consideration, whereas Bellevue was the infirmary in the almshouse, workhouse, poorhouse in New York City. And so Bellevue took responsibility for poverty. The largest buildings on the Bellevue campus until almost 1850 were the building for the male paupers and the building for the female paupers. But Pennsylvania Hospital didn't have buildings for paupers because it was focused on what we understood disease to be, medicine to be. So the bright line between social determinants of health and and medicine is one that um, we we need to be careful about. That that part of and and I think the point you make about uh, made about that being a theme. What Jeff Brenner was saying was, you can turn a blind eye to the social determinants of health here, but it's going to cost you on the acute care side and what you call regular health. And so I think again, we want to be careful to recognize that 
that has to be a porous boundary. It's always a porous boundary. And we want to do the best we can to meet our patients where they are uh, and get them the services that, that they need. And now it's, uh, I've lost what your third point was. Uh, I apologize. No, that's okay. Uh, the uh, I, the third one was the the uh, importance of primary care. Yes, yes, uh, and and with respect to primary care, uh, I, I think that it is. Um, I have a uh, when our children were in elementary school, the the and they were about to go to middle school, the the fifth grade teacher said, in primary school, we teach students, and in middle school, they teach subjects. Um, and they move from a world that's all about the kids to a world that's about math and English and history and, and whatever. And it was a kind of interesting and poignant way to think about the world. Um, we, we definitely need for kids to learn math. Um, but we also need a world where the kids are the center of, of that world. And in medicine, I think we balance it uneasily. Uh, and I think the under-resourcing of primary care exacerbates the way in which patients can get, uh, can get segments of care at a very high level. But it is challenging for people to find a resource that integrates all those segments around them and their needs. So we do a great job of meeting the segmented need, but we don't necessarily do such a good job uh, putting it all together. And I think successful systems put it together and primary care, it's at the heart of primary care to put it all together. Yeah, and no, I think that's that's really well said. And of course, of course, we're biased. Uh, we're, we both have a background in internal medicine and primary care, but um, I, I, to me, it's again, um, with that biased perspective, I think there's a lot of literature to support that. And um, how do you, in your role, and it might be helpful even for, for to just outline for a brief moment what, what the American Board of Internal Medicine is and does and is responsible for, but in your role, current role as a CEO, um, what, how, how are you guiding the American Board of Internal Medicine to support s s some of the direction that you've been speaking to in terms of, um, you know, is getting back to as much as possible uh, the kind of care that you, you, you were pointing out? Right. So I, I think that um, what the board does... The, the history of the board is uh, really goes back to the mid-19th century when the New York State Medical Association complained at the AMA meeting about a group of doctors who claimed special expertise in heart disease and didn't actually have any special expertise in heart disease. And it was, in the words of the report from the time, a naked attempt to grab patients. And the board movement grows out of that as, you know, if you have special expertise, it shouldn't be self-claimed. It's something that should be validated by an independent third party. That, and, and the board, the first board is the American Board of Ophthalmology, and that's 1916. And the boards are all about uh, recognizing doctors who have specific skills 
and saying, this doctor really has those skills. This doctor really has that ability. And I think that's very important for patients because patients can be uh, uncertain about the skills of their providers. And in a way, the world of the internet, um, where in that famous New Yorker cartoon, you know, two dogs talking in front of a screen, nobody knows you're a dog on the internet. One of them is typing. <laughs> um, it, it, it is, uh, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. And if you Google, and I, I did this just last week, if you Google arthritis, uh, the first four things you get are, are drug company sponsored sites and, uh, uh, and a kind of naturopathic orthopedist, at least in my, in, in our location, that's what I got. And I think it's important for doctors to have a way to be able to demonstrate that they are current in their discipline. And the, the board has been under a lot of fire lately, and a lot of it's been about the maintenance of certification program. And that program fundamentally is based on the premise that, that medicine has changed a lot since I trained 30 plus years ago. And it is no more the case that I can just say, oh, I know what's going on in today's medicine. Um, I, I, I need to be able to demonstrate that. And particularly as someone who practiced my whole career outside the academic health center, um, I had to work pretty hard to stay current in the field. And I was very grateful for the opportunity to be able to demonstrate that I was not relying on what I had learned when I finished residency in 1981. Um, and I voluntarily recertified in internal medicine in 1998, almost 20 years into my career, before I had anything to do with ABIM, because I think that's important. So I think the idea that we are there to offer the best we can to our patients. I think that's core to who we are as doctors and to our professionalism. And ABIM builds programs that allow doctors to say, I am practicing today's medicine. Mm -hmm. I do know what I need to know to do what I'm doing. And I think that's an important and validating and fulfilling thing. Yeah, no, I, I just want to, you know, it's interesting. I, I was uh, talking to someone today and they were telling me so this is not coming from the literature. This is secondhand. But they were telling me that uh, that over the past seven years, uh, about uh, about seventeen percent. So about one out of every uh, six things that we took uh, as evidence based medicine seven years ago is no longer evidence based medicine. And um, so that's a pretty significant turnover of what we accepted as truth and reality. Um, if one sixth of it is is no longer true and real, and the idea of keeping up with that um, is critically important in in the work that uh, you know that physicians and other providers do, so I, I think you're you're making a great point. But, you know what strikes me though about about the work you're doing at the ABIM and the focus of the ABIM, and you know contrasting that with what we were talking or what you were talking about before is how that again is is so rooted in. In, and it should be in 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 science and scientific knowledge and clinical knowledge and evidence based knowledge, um, and making sure people are um, are up to speed with that and, and competent and and so, uh, how do you how do you bring in that other side of what you were talking about, which 
you know, and so because it, it almost it almost seems like you have two very, very different sides to you. And one is your day job. And how do you bring that other side into the day job if you can or, or is it does it belong somewhere else? Well, it, it certainly belongs in the day job. Um, and and I think that we have gone from a place at the board where we had uh, requirements around people doing activities of looking at their own practices uh, to where now what we do is we recognize and reward people doing things like improvement activities or communication activities rather than saying you have to do this to be board certified. I think the it, it's been an interesting education. I, I think most doctors don't feel warmly about quality improvement these days. And as uh, because my own career had me thinking about numerator denominator data, both when I was leading a Medicaid insurance uh, company as their medical director on a part-time basis, but also as somebody who was in practice and who uh, our practice adopted electronic health records early uh, 2004. And I was very interested in being able to answer questions like, what percent of the women in my practice actually did get a mammogram last year? Uh, what percent of my patients with diabetes actually had their blood pressure controlled? And those were things that when I had paper records, I could not answer those questions. And I think that we, and, and the board has been part of this, um, we, by requiring it, we made people lose the joy and interest and excitement that you could get in looking at your own practice. Uh, I think of it as parallel to what happened with meaningful use. Uh, the big problem we had in 2004 in adopting electronic health records was we had to pay for it. We had to fund it ourselves. And it was hugely disruptive for our practice. But once we had them, we were able to use it to solve problems we thought were important. And if you ask yourself, when we went from a 6% adoption rate to a 70% adoption rate, 80% adoption rate over a short period of time, who trained all those doctors how to use electronic health records? The answer really is compliance officers. It's people saying, uh, you have to do this so we can qualify for the meaningful use program. And that would be as if when you introduced CAT scanners, you had radiation safety officers educate radiologists about how to use them. And I think we made a mistake at the board by requiring improvement activities. As important as they are, I think what we did was we did it in a way that kept doctors from unlocking their own curiosity. So in redesigning the program, we've shifted from a mode of saying, you must do this, to a mode that says, this is really important. We think it can be interesting and fun. We're going to recognize and reward people who do that, but we're not going to require it. So bringing together uh, the human experience of, of being a primary care doctor and really learning how to listen to people and, and hear uh, and take an honest look at how successfully we're getting something done. Uh, leadership at the board has involved thinking hard about how do we do this important work in a way that uh, it lives and breathes in our doctors' lives and in our colleagues' lives. 
Yeah, that's really wonderful. I, you know, in listening to you, I, I, I'm beginning to understand and see how I think in your mind, um, it really, really are weaving these things together, the knowledge, uh, the relational part and communication part, uh, as well as the, um, the curiosity, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but the, uh, the sort of passion around how am I doing? And, uh, you know, am I doing what I, what I want to do in terms of taking care of my patients? And how do I know that? And how do I improve that? And so I can see how, how you're, they're very much uh, intertwined. At least that's the way it's coming across to me now and hearing you speak. It, that is certainly how I think about it. And I think one of the, uh, tragedies of our time is a, a kind of broad cynicism and anger and frustration. I think it sweeps across the whole political discourse, and it, it certainly has swept across some of ABIM's work. And I think physicians are heroes. Physicians are absolutely heroes. They go to work every day uh, and put themselves out there for their patients. And I think being recognized as having a special set of skills is is core to what physicians do and should do. And in some ways, some of the frustration that people have had uh, at the board is part of frustration of, of knowledge and expertise generally, uh, that I think knowledge and expertise are being devalued. They're being devalued across the culture. And I think there, we live in a world now where people think, oh, I can just find information on Google, so expertise doesn't matter. Um, I have a coffee cup that says, don't mistake my Google search, sorry, don't mistake your Google search for my medical degree. Mm -hmm. And I think that doctors need support and help in in uh, being able to claim the ground we legitimately own, we worked hard to master the science. We worked hard to master the skills. We want to put it at the service of patients every day. And uh, and it's not a time that that people are necessarily feeling very positive about that. They're, they're feeling skeptical. They're feeling cynical. They're feeling devalued. And... Uh, and they're thinking, you know, uh, these credentials don't really mean anything. Everybody has one. Um, and it's just not true. I think what Dr. Sue is special. And I, I certainly hope that, um, that the doctors who hold our credential are proud of it and realize that everybody knows how much work they had to do to get it and keep it. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I applaud what you just said and I agree with it. And, um, it's having practiced internal medicine for many years uh, and, and worked very hard at, uh, you know, attempting to be as competent as I could be. The, it's hard to explain to people who, who don't have that experience um, how challenging it is. The knowledge itself, first of all, just keeping up with the knowledge, it's not even with Google and even with searches you you can't always get that information you need at the moment you need it there there is you just need to have that with you and and then be able to know where to access the specific information you need but it's also the complexity of care so knowing something about hypertension is great but when you have a person in front of you who's got six or seven different medical problems and is on multiple medications there's nothing you could look up to help you with that 
um, that requires um, a level of being able to um, really stitch all that together. And there is experience involved, and and part of it is just knowing how to how to make it all work. Uh, you know, it's almost like you know trying to to say to someone you could um, uh, you could uh, Google how to be a conductor. Well, you know, you, you can't. Um, you could Google a lot of things about being a conductor, but being a, a conductor is um, a matter of experience and wisdom and skill and knowledge and talent and uh, tremendous intention. So I think, um, you know, I, I think you're right. Explaining that and, and having people understand that and appreciate it. And the truth is, in my experience, it's, it's not appreciated until until you actually need it. And, and you find it and you see, you know, and you're think and, and you, the only thing you can think is, thank God that I have a doctor here who has that and, and is helping me. That is so true. That is so profoundly true. And you need those building blocks at your disposal that, that you're right. When you, when you see somebody, it, it's not a one dimensional problem. It's got multiple things coming together and you can't look up the whole thing, you need to bring solid building blocks of ability, knowledge, expertise, and that has to be reliable. It has to be accurate. It has to be today. Um, and you can look up pieces of it for sure, but you need to start with a, a, a pretty solid and broad range of skills. And, uh, and I think that, that we're doctors are very self-critical and we underestimate the value of our own skills. And we work in settings with lots of other people who have those skills. And we say, oh, it's not special to have these skills at all. Um, as I point out to people, the, the ultimate pass rate on our subspecialty exam in cardiology is 96 or 97%. Uh, so you might say, well, why bother to give it? I guarantee if a thousand oncologists took the cardiology exam, they're smart people, but the pass rate is not going to be 96%. Right. It's going to be 0%. Right. So there really, there really is a skill that we have. Uh, not everybody has it. And we work hard, all of us, to maintain it um, and differentiating ourselves from those who say they have these skills but don't uh, is, I think, of, of importance to all of us and even more important to our patients. Is there, and I, I, I promised I would uh, be able to get you back to work, I know, uh, pretty shortly. So I want to, I've got so many other questions, but I'm, I'm going to try to, to wrap it up here. Um let me ask you this. Let me before my final couple of questions. Is there something else you would want to share with us today? Is there some burning topic, given what we're talking about, that, uh, or, or even just a message to the people who are listening? I would want all of us to be proud of what we do and to appreciate how much we mean to patients and how much we contribute to their lives. I think it's very easy to take it for granted. I think it's very easy to get buried in the day-to-day -day work that we do and to, uh, in the same way that we sometimes lose the patients in the science, uh, we lose our own sense of purpose and meaning in the day-to-day -day work that we do. And whether it's uh, going to a, a patient's life event um, whether it's taking some time in an interview with a patient to understand something about their life and how the work that, uh, that you as a physician do in that life, 
uh, has uh, has an impact on that life and changes that life. I don't think we celebrate ourselves enough. I don't think we give ourselves enough space to connect with our patients and turn the crazy day-to-day work and the mouse clicks and the prior authorizations and all the stuff that just feels like overwhelming. Mm. Getting out from under that and connecting with the meaning of the work we do with our patients, I think that's a critical thing for doctors to do. We, we and again, I, I, I really applaud that and completely agree with what you're saying. In fact, it, I think one of my most significant observations of healthcare, and it's not just physicians, but I think it's everyone in healthcare, is that we do amazing work, and I just see it every single day, and I've seen it every single day for decades, and yet we we don't um, you lose a, a, an appreciation for how critically important it is what you're and what you're doing is and how meaningful it is um i i mean i often find in other industries um whether it's making coffee or and there's nothing wrong about making coffee or making cars or they find they really spend a lot of time um in those other industries focused on meaning making and while it's abundantly there and present um embedded in healthcare we, for some reason, lose sight of that and, and lose the sense of that. And, and I guess I'm just wondering, you know, Richard, given, you know, given your role in the ABIM and given the ABIM, I just wonder if a direction for the future, and you may already be doing this, so I apologize, but I wonder if part of it is um, this idea of celebrating uh, providers, celebrating physicians, and somehow, you know, focusing on the meaning of medicine as well. I just wonder if that could be part of the mission or, or is it already? It's a great question. And uh, one of the things that we've started to do in surveys and a major change I've made in the board, I think we're moving from an authority-based world generally to where expertise is because you're an expert uh, to much more legitimacy comes from engagement. Uh, And so we're spending a lot more time trying to talk to our diplomates at ABIM. And one of the questions that we're asking them on surveys is, what do you want to be recognized for? What's important to you about what you do to be recognized? And uh, we're still learning about that. Uh, we We are trying to figure out the best way we can make a contribution to this issue. And we're approaching it with curiosity and humility uh, to, to try to get an answer to that question and, and build it more successfully into our program. I, I would love to hear what you what you discover as you as you talk to more uh, physicians about that, because I, I, I think there's something there. I, 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 you know, I think what you said is absolutely true. And you know, and and of course, given all the issues we're having right now with burnout, burnout, uh, you know, amongst providers in particular, physicians in particular, and and in particular primary care, I think this issue is core to the sustainment of the profession. And so, uh, so I would be very, very interested in in that. And uh, you know, if I could help you out, let me know. Thank you. Um, Absolutely. Um, last question, uh, and I ask uh, folks this: uh, What was the what was the best piece of advice you were ever given? I was in medical school, and uh, the preceptor I had, clinical preceptor, as a second or third year medical student, uh, he said, um, you should take the day off to see your kid in the school play. You'll be a better doctor if you do. 
He said, you should get the same medical advice that you would advise to your patients and don't rely on the spotty advice of specialist colleagues. Don't stop and ask people in the hall about your own medical issues, but actually uh, do the same level, put yourself in the same position that you would advise your patients to be in. And those were two things that he said that were uh, profoundly influenced me in terms of advice that, again, I think both of them have to do with burnout that uh, we protect ourselves if we respect our own expertise and the expertise of some of our colleagues. So uh, actually being a patient when we need to be a patient um, is an important thing to do. And uh, staying in touch with your life, uh, even with all the demands of medical practice, it's sustaining and it makes us better at what we do. Well, that's that's fantastic. That's great advice. And um I, I hope that uh, I'll uh, I'll listen to that a little bit more, and I hope our guests do as our our listeners do as well. So, so Richard, I, I'm cognizant of the time, and uh, and and want to be respectful of your time. So, I just want to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Richard Barron, for being part of uh, our uh, podcast, creating a new healthcare, and and absolutely uh, you delivered in terms of bringing us some fresh perspectives and new ideas and. Uh, I, I know I, I learned a bunch that I'm going to be uh, thinking about and taking with me. And, and again, I am very, very interested in, in what you're going to discover as you talk to uh, physicians in terms of, uh, of how they want to be celebrated and, and this whole issue of meaning and purpose. And, um, and uh, keeping with our discussion, uh, as always, I want to thank our listeners uh, who, who many of you are out there doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting others who are taking care of patients. Um, and as Dr. Richard Barron said, that is hero's work. Um, I hope this has been as uh, delightful and useful um, and engaging for you as it was for me this time. And so uh, until we meet again, uh, be well. Thank you very much, and I'd be happy to take you up on the offer to do the interview the other way. You do some great work, Steve. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard.